Thank you, worship team. That was great. They had more energy than I had it tonight, I can tell you that. Oh, it's good to see everybody make it out. We are in Isaiah chapter 19, and we're going to try to get into chapter 20 as well tonight. So, hope you didn't make any plans. No, shouldn't be too bad. So, um, since Isaiah 13, uh, we've been going through this series of burdens, right? It's, it's the, depending on your translation, it'll call them oracles or burdens. They were just heavy messages that God gave Isaiah to speak to the various nations around Israel, right? He was basically being the bearer of bad news. Here's how your destruction is going to come, right? Here's, here's what's coming down the road. And so um, we're going to continue that tonight. Last week we talked about Ethiopia or, we, or Cush is what, what it was referred to as and uh, some different theories regarding that. Uh, Cush, uh, you may recall we talked about that mainly is the territory of Ethiopia, but for a time the king of Ethiopia was also king of Egypt. And, uh, and so tonight, he, he, you know, it's... it's uh, even though we're in a different chapter, Isaiah didn't write this book in chapters, right? He, he had a train of thought going. And so he was talking about Ethiopia. Now he's going to turn his attention to Egypt because they're closely connected, uh, but also, you know, a significant player in the Middle East. And still today, they're, you know, they're still a, a big deal. So uh, we're going to get into all that. But before we do it, uh, any of that, let's uh, go ahead and pray. We'll ask God to help us understand this stuff. Lord, we thank you so much for blessing us to be here tonight, uh, for preserving your holy word. Uh, Lord, it's, uh, we're in the book that most people never bother to read or, or preach or study because it's difficult. Uh, and so, Lord, we, we pray uh, that you would bless us to glean some understanding from it. Um, we, I don't feel up to the task, but I know that you want to be known uh, that you, if we lack wisdom, you tell us to ask. So we're asking tonight, help us understand your word. Help us understand you better. And Lord, we know that the message you gave Isaiah applies not just to the people of his time, but to our time. So help us to be able to apply it to our lives and be transformed and changed by it. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, let's get right into it. Isaiah 19. Verse 1, it says, The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians. And they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. So remember, we, we, I mentioned this earlier, we talked last week about how for a time the king of Ethiopia also was the king of Egypt. In pretty short order, he realized this was just too much territory for him to effectively uh, control. And so he went back south to Ethiopia 
and left Egypt in just mayhem. It's almost like when an occupying force pulls out unexpectedly without a good plan, it doesn't go well. Just saying. Um, so he pulls out of, uh, out of Egypt, and so Ethi- uh, Egypt is kind of thrown into basically a, a little bit of a civil war. Not, there's not really one side against another. What it was is Egypt was divided into like 42 different provinces. They called them gnomes. And, uh, and they all sort of fought against each other. You know, each, each little county or territory, you know, trying to gain a, 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 f- a foothold up on the other one. So... So they're all fighting against each other. Verse 3, it says, Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy, so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and to spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them declares the Lord God of hosts. So he says in this, in this trying time when everybody's fighting against everybody, when it's, you, nobody's really sure who's in charge, that during that time, they'll resort to idols, ghosts of the dead, mediums, and spiritists. It's interesting that in times of, uh, of great poverty, in times of war, uh, in uncertain times, psychics, witches, spiritualists, all of that stuff enjoys revival. And you can go back throughout history and you'll see these, these ebbs and flows, these you know, up and down trends where we had, uh, we had a real um, revival of spiritual spiritualists and ghosts and mediums and psychics and all that stuff in the early 20th century, right before we went into the Great Depression and the world, world wars and all of that. So it's almost like when things are uncertain, we look around for something to give us comfort, right? To give us some certainty. So God says these people during this time, they're going to listen to the wrong people. They're going to listen to the wrong voices. And specifically, he lists these things, right? Idols, ghosts of the dead, mediums, and spiritists. Now, I don't want to belabor the point, but we're going we're gonna to hit a, a section of Scripture here in case you've never read it or never heard it. But Deuteronomy chapter 18, God gave Moses some very clear direction when it came to these sort of things. Here's what he said in Deuteronomy 18. This is as, as Israel is about to enter into the promised land. God says, you're going to encounter some of these things. And I want you to know what is okay and what is not. Right? Deuteronomy 18, verse 9, it says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Well, we've talked about that over and over. Uh, that's, this was Moloch worship, right? This was, you would basically sacrifice children um, for your financial gain. Uh, the modern equivalent of that would be, you know, aborting children for your financial comfort or gain. 
uh, he says that's not okay, right? Uh, no one sh- that does that is okay. One who uses divination, which is trying to tell the future. One who practices witchcraft. One who interprets omens or a sorcerer. Sorcery is, is interesting when we look at that word uh, in the different languages and what it means. It really means uh, one who, you know, a sorcerer was one who used potions. And in the Greek, when they translated this book in the Pentateuch, they called it pharmakia. It was where we get pharmacy from. This was someone who made drugs to help you have a, a certain experience, right? You're going through a tough time. Here's a potion. Here's a drug to help you through it. And God says, that, that's, not, that's not how you get through hard times. Verse 11, one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. Now, before I read the next verse, you notice he didn't say, because this is all baloney and bullcrap. Right? He didn't say, because it's all made up and not real. Some of it is. There are charlatans when it comes to this kind of stuff. But there is rea- th- this is a reality, too. Right? You cannot believe in a supernatural God and not believe in the supernatural. That's a problem. This is real stuff. And another night, we'll talk more about that. I have some background in that that uh, I'll share with you. But uh, one who casts a spell, a medium, a spiritist, one who calls up the dead. Verse 12, for whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. So it's not just, you know... You're calling the psychic hotline or whatever. Uh, it's not just fun and games. God says, this is disgusting to me. Right? If you're getting your comfort from, uh, from these things, from drugs, from uh, psychics, from mediums, from you know, ghosts and all that kind of stuff, uh, that's a problem. That's not something that should be part of our, our walk. So you remember Isaiah, he's, he's almost always referring to future events, right? Some of the stuff is in the near future. That's what's so unique, what's so awesome about the book of, of Isaiah, is some of the things he prophesied came true during his lifetime. It gave him a lot of credibility amongst the Israelites because they're like, that guy, like some of the stuff he said actually happened, right? Uh, and then some of it happened shortly after his, his life ended. Some of it is much further in the future, in our time frame, or even in, the, uh, even in our future. Uh, so, this, you know, some of what he talks about are things that these people would live to see for themselves, but much of it is still waiting to be fulfilled. Uh, and some of it, I believe, has been fulfilled in the last few decades. Um, throughout its history... Egypt's economy has been centered around the Nile River. Uh, Every August, or thereabouts, the Nile overflows its, or would overflow its banks and flood the delta around uh, around the river. 
and it would create an inland uh, freshwater sea for a time. And so all the farming in Egypt depended on this, right? They, they planned around the fact that we'll be dry, 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 then we'll flood. And then, so we'll, we'll plant and sow and reap accordingly based on that. If it didn't flood, there would be famine. Sometimes for years at a time, like seven years at a time. It's something that we see in another portion of the Old Testament. The fishing industry was dependent on the Nile. When, that, when its banks would overflow and it would create this freshwater inland sea, there were fish that were like con- totally confused. They're used to being in the river, now they're in a lake, and, and the Egyptians would kind of you know, scoop all of them up, and it was a great harvest for them. They also were known for their, their cloth and their paper manufacturing, uh, and all of that was dependent on flax. Uh, and flax is grown, was grown in the Egyptian delta, so it was all dependent on the floods and all that stuff. So this is something that God had put into place centuries before, and it's just that's how Egypt, Egypt functioned. The um, reason I'm telling you all that is, we'll see here in Isaiah 19, verse 5. He says, the waters from the sea will dry up and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and the rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile Uh, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament, and all those who cast the line into the Nile will mourn, and those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from uh, combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected, and the pillars of Egypt will be crushed, and all the hired laborers which is most of us, right? This, this is a, a way to refer to middle, middle income and lower income people. All the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. So, um, in, from 1960 to 1970, Egypt embarked on one of the most ambitious construction projects in modern history. They constructed this thing called the Aswan High Dam. Uh, it's one of the greatest engineering feats in, in history. This thing is 364 feet high, it's 12,500 feet long, and it's 3,200 feet thick. That's more than half a mile thick. Uh, it's also the most cons- uh, expensive construction project in history, as far as we know. This was a dam that they built to dam up the Nile River. And, uh, you know, the, the idea was this will, you know, instead of us being dependent on floods and droughts and all this stuff and not knowing 
from year to year what's going to happen. This will give us control over our climate and over our environment, and we'll be able to, you know, choose how much water goes through. So it did stop the flooding, and it, and it allowed them to have a little more control over irrigation. Uh, it also created the largest man-made lake on the planet, it's Lake Nassar. It's amazing. But, right, there's always a big but. What they didn't account for was when all this flooding happens, it's not just water. All the silt, all the dirt, all the stuff that got pushed out with the floodwaters would spread through, and that's what kept the ground fertile, fertile, able to grow things, right? That this fresh layer of sediment and, and, and silt being pushed out by the floodwaters. Well, when they built the dam, all the silt, all the soil, all that stuff stays behind the dam because they're just letting water out. And it be, what it did is it created this ecological nightmare. What ended up happening is this area that flooded every year, or almost every year, water will always find a way, right? And so what happened is the Mediterranean, a saltwater sea, went, well, we'll take this low ground, and it took over that area. And it just killed the ground. It, it messed up all of the, the schools of fish. We're all confused, and, you know, some of them died. And you had salt water where it used to be fresh water, and fresh water where it used to be salt water. And there were these, these little snails that used to be just kind of pushed out by the floodwaters, but they weren't anymore. And they took over and just devoured all the flax in the area. So Egypt's main, like its cash crop was flax. They made paper and they made linen. And all that was just eaten up by these stupid snails. They didn't account for that. I know you guys didn't come here for a study in ecology, right? Whether this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about or not, you can decide that. But my gosh, it sure seems like it, right? Everything he describes has happened in our lifetime. They're still dealing with the ramifications of it. Uh, they've talked about destroying this dam, just giving up. They realized it was so thick, it would take a nuclear explosion to blow this thing up. <laughs> so they were like, well, I guess we'll keep it. And they've been trying to sort through it for 40 plus years. Regardless, we'll read on. Uh, whether that's the fulfillment or not, Isaiah is describing a time when their whole ecology and economy is going to be disrupted by something that happens to the Nile River. So Isaiah 19, verse 11, says, The princes of Zoan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors have become stupid. It's funny when the Bible uses words like that. How can you men say to Pharaoh, 
I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings. So Zoan, this, was, this used to be the capital of Egypt for a couple hundred years. It's also called Tanis uh, in some of the Greek uh, literature. But Psalm 78, if you're one that likes to, to double-check things, Psalm 78, verses 12 and 43 tell us this is where Moses performed his miracles before Pharaoh. Right, so this would have been the capital city, most likely, when Moses was doing his thing in Egypt. And so he basically, the point is, the wise men in important places in Egypt are going to look really stupid right, during this time that he's describing. These people that we've all depended on, who made all the big decisions, like maybe spending more money than has ever been spent in the history of mankind on a construction project, are going to look really stupid. Verse 12, it says, Well then, where are your wise men? Please, let them tell you, and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes, the, uh, the princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Uh, those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. So the people everyone depends on Right? That's what a cornerstone is for. That's what you build all the foundation around. So the people that everyone in Egypt is depending on have led them astray. This is a recurring theme throughout I, the book of Isaiah. And, we, and we've especially hit on it the last few weeks. Be careful who you align yourself with. Who you get your counsel from. Because it matters. Verse 14, it says, The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does, as a drunkard, uh, drunken man staggers in his vomit. There will be no work for Egypt, which its head or tail, its palm branch or bulrush may do. Some strong language, right? The picture is, is this once great and powerful nation begins to depend on idols, on the occult, on foolish leaders. And the result is a nation that seems like just a drunk stumbling around, falling down in his own puke. Some of us have seen that scene. Some of you, I see some... People under 21, hopefully you have not seen that scene. But some of us have seen that, and it's a pitiful thing, right? There's no self-help program that's going to change things for them, is what he gets at. And instead of a foolish counsel, they need the full counsel of God. They've been listening to the wrong voices, aligning themselves with the wrong people. Verse 16, it says, in that day, remember that's, an, that's a phrase, anytime we see that, we know to sit up straight, right, pay attention, in that day. That phrase appears 43 times in the book of Isaiah. In that day, he's talking about the far future. This is not the stuff that's going to happen during his lifetime. 
This is the stuff that's going to happen way down the road, maybe in our lifetimes or maybe even later. He's talking about the last days, right? In that day, the Egyptians will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. Remember, the Lord of hosts, that word means heavenly armies or armies. Right? This is the God of heaven's armies. And Isaiah says they're going to be like women. Now this can, in, especially in uh, today's climate with cancel culture, you know, we could probably cancel Isaiah, right? He's, he, he's putting down women in, in some uh, manner, but you've got you to gotta remember the time period when he's writing this. The idea is being like a woman is being like a coward, right? It's, he's going to quiver and be afraid like a woman. I'm not saying you guys are cowardly. I know some of you. I know you're not, but I am cowardly compared to some of you. Verse 17, it says, The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Now think of that. This is Egypt held Israel in captivity at one time, right? Israel were slaves to Egypt. And now, Isaiah says, The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it. Because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. He's basically, this, this is like New York being afraid of Kendallville. <laughs> right? There's no reason, right? We should, we're not competition. But Isaiah says, in that day, that's how it's going to be. So, another history lesson. Uh, what year was it Israel became a nation? Uh, 19, 1948, yes. Uh, 1967, there's this event, the Six-Day War. Uh, Egypt, uh, their air force is wiped out by Israel's air force. And if you read some of the accounts, it's just mind-boggling because their air force, half of it were like Cessna, crop dusters and they're like dropping homemade hand grenades out the window and somehow blowing up ships it was a god thing right but egypt's air force is wiped out they fought they fought egypt uh syria and jordan in this six-day war and during that time they defeated all three and captured the sinai peninsula it's, it's amazing it was humiliating for, for Egypt and Syria and Jordan. So a few years went by, and, and some of you are old enough to remember, in 1973, there's another war, the Yom Kippur War. It's a big holiday in, in Israel when they don't even broadcast the television, and, you know, everybody's supposed to be home and not doing anything. It'd be like a war breaking out here on Christmas Day or something. So Egypt and Syria, they, they've been humiliated. They decide to strike back against Israel. And so what happened was Egypt's tanks uh, crossed the Suez Canal, 
on their way to Jerusalem. And they stopped in the Sinai, and they were just kind of waiting instruction, right? And there was this guy, uh, Ariel Sharon. He was a general in Israel's army. That name may sound familiar to some of you, right? He became prime minister of Israel eventually. So he takes his tanks out, and he sees they're all just kind of parked there in the Sinai. He knows, like, they're heading to Jerusalem. And he's like, well, I can engage them, which is what his orders were. And he disregarded his orders and said, you know what? If they're going to go after our capital, we're going to go after theirs. And he went around them straight to Cairo. And then that's when America got involved. That's when Henry Kissinger was like, uh, hold on. You can't go attack Cairo, right? You can't attack their capital city, even though they're attacking your capital. Um, and so there's some negotiations that go back and forth. And, and Sharon, what he, he, he's like, fine, I, he backs up. And what he does is he ends up encircling Egypt's army. Somehow, some way, he maneuvers his tanks to where they're in, they're basically just, encircled by his tanks and Egypt basically loses they, they have to forfeit their whole army at that point they have to surrender and then uh, Anwar Sadat uh, ends up negotiating a peace treaty with with Israel not long after that why do I bring all that stuff up other than I'm a history nerd It wasn't that long ago when Israel was a slave to Egypt. And in our lifetime, we saw Egypt quaking in fear before Israel. When do the last days start? Some people believe that uh, when Israel became a nation in 1948, that that sort of started the clock ticking, you know, that that's when the fig tree blossomed or whatever. I don't know. I don't know for sure. But I do know that Egypt, this once great and mighty nation, is now completely intimidated by Israel. They want nothing to do with Israel. And that happened in my lifetime. And for many of you, it was in your lifetime. Verse 18, in that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan, which would be Hebrew, right? The language of the, the Jews, and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. Now, that's a weird translation. This, your translation may say the city of the sun. It's the same place. Uh, this was a city called Heliopolis. So Isaiah says, in that day, in the far future, most of our major cities are going to be speaking Hebrew. They're going to be worshiping the Lord, including Heliopolis, the place where we worship, or where Israel worshiped their main God. They have many gods, right? But their main God was the sun god, Ra. And Heliopolis was where they worshipped Ra. That was the city dedicated to the worship of Ra. 
Uh, today, Heliopolis is known as, any guess? Bunch of nerds. That's Cairo. Cairo, Egypt. is. Heliopolis was absorbed by Cairo. So basically, he's saying the, the capital of Egypt, the main place, the main city, is going to be worshiping the Lord. Verse 19, in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. So there's going to be such a radical change in Egypt that the city dedicated to worshiping their false god is now going to worship the true God. That's what Isaiah is getting at. Verse 20, it says, uh, It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors. And he will send them a savior. Now, those of you that are following along in your Bible, is that word capitalized? Yeah. Some of you, it, you, some of you your Bible probably did capitalize that. That's an editorial choice, but I'll tell you why. He will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. So normally when you see a word capitalized unexpectedly, it's the, the uh, translators assume that is a reference to Jesus or to God or to, to deity, right? Isaiah says there are going to be oppressors. Uh, they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors. Daniel 11 describes this, this scenario where the Antichrist invades Egypt in the last days. Right before Armageddon. He invades Egypt. He's on his way to conquer all of northern Africa. That's his main goal at that time. And uh, as, he, as he captures Egypt and he starts to invade Ethiopia, he hears rumor of another army coming down from the north. This is something we talked about a few weeks ago. This army uh, coming down from the north, which would be like a coalition of Russia and a few other nations. And he also hears of another army coming from the east, an army of 200 million plus men. Wonder who that could be. And he, he, so he turns his attention from that, uh, from Egypt, and he goes and he meets these armies in the valley of um, Megiddo, which is where we get Armageddon. That's where that big battle happens. But Isaiah says, when all this stuff's going on, when Egypt is being oppressed or being invaded and it's just a terrible time, God is going to send them a savior and a champion. Verse 21, thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. Striking but healing. Sometimes we have to go through a difficult time, right? You have to go through some hurt in order to heal. Sometimes you've got to get spanked by life to get back on track. He's striking but healing. He's doing it for their own good. 
You know, if you're going through tough times, maybe, maybe it's time to get on your knees and, and repent and, and bring your brokenness to him so he can heal you. I know we're running a little long. We'll see if we can plow through these last few verses. Uh, verse 23, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria. Remember, Assyria is Egypt's mortal enemy. This is the big baddie that they're all afraid of. And he says, in that day... There's going to be a highway between them. They'll be able to come and go, and it's like they were never enemies. Verse 24, In that day Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. He's calling Egypt his people. And Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. And that day, these, these mortal enemies are going to be joined together in worship of the Lord. And no, there's no geopolitical uh, treaties involved here. The only real peace comes through Jesus. And they're all going to agree that is the Lord. I think we can do it in a few minutes. Isaiah 20. It's only like a few verses. Isaiah 20, uh, verse 1. In that... In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it. Ashdod is this Philistine city. It's about 30 miles from Jerusalem. It's a city that the tribe of Judah took 700 years to capture, and the Assyrians do it on their first try. This, this happened, we know from history, this happened in 711 B.C., so we know what Isaiah is talking about. Verse 2, At that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. Y'all should be grateful that the Lord has not given me those instructions. Being a prophet was hard. But you can see here, Isaiah was wearing sackcloth. That was like an itchy, like burlap, right? And he wore this as a sign of mourning or, or sadness. So he was already doing that as a sign, and God's like, you know what? We're going to step this up. Verse 3, And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and token against Egypt and Cush. Now, it's funny. Some people... Uh, my Southern Baptist brothers will say, well, he, didn't, he wasn't actually naked. He stripped down to his undergarments. And I'm like, that's not what it says. As a matter of fact, in verse 4, it says, So the king of Assyria will lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with, <laughs> with their butts uncovered to the shame of Egypt, right? They weren't in their undergarments. God's saying, I care so much about these people that I am asking you, Isaiah, to be inconvenienced, to be embarrassed, to show, to be shamed, and show them what it is that is headed their way. Verse 5, then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. So the inhabitants of the coastland will say in that day, behold, such is our hope. 
where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? In other words, we put all our hope in these people, and look, they're being led away naked and ashamed. That's what we were depending on. I know I'm running long, but um, listen, God loves the whole world. And he wants you to help spread the gospel to the whole world, even if it's inconvenient or even if it's embarrassing. Romans 1, verse 14, Paul says this. He says, I am under obligation. Right? This is my purpose. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. People are more easily offended today, I think, than ever. And you may be afraid to share your faith with people because you don't want to offend people. I understand that. But here's what I need you to understand. Everybody, no matter what they say, everybody knows there is a God. Romans 1.19 says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. He, everyone knows there's a God. It's whether or not they are willing to admit it. Because if you admit it, then now you are subject to him. Ecclesiastes says that he put eternity in our hearts. That is what separates us from animals. Is that we are aware that we are mortal and we are aware that there is an eternity. Hebrews 2 says that everyone fears death. So those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. We're all enslaved to things for our whole lives because we're afraid of death and we try to you know, find experiences to make us forget about it. Or we, or we try to find a drug or an alcohol or something to make us forget about the fact that I am going to die one day. And Romans 2 tells us that we all have a conscience. That we all have guilt because we all know we've sinned. Romans 8 says that all creation, and that includes you and me and anybody that claims there is no God, is subject to futility or vanity. That we have this emptiness inside of us. That, you know, when we talk about that God-shaped hole in someone's heart, that's, I think, where people get that idea. But God says there is something empty inside of you that only I can fill. Listen, I would rather be uh, embarrassed here than ashamed when I stand before Jesus. Because I wouldn't share the gospel. I wouldn't share the good news with people because I was afraid I wouldn't be popular because of it. I'm running long. Here's the deal. We'll summarize the whole message. 
Time is short. Hell is hot. Forever is a long time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you've uh, preserved your word for us. We thank you that you spoke through your prophets, including Isaiah and others, uh, uh, not only to to give us knowledge about who you are, but also, Lord, to give everyone everywhere a chance to, to repent, to be transformed uh, through a relationship with you. Lord, we just pray that you would give us the courage to share our faith uh, however we need to in our daily lives. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Lord, we pray that uh, someone somewhere would be touched by the gospel being shared by these people that heard this message tonight. We know that you can do it. We know that you will do it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We can't wait for you to come and come quickly. And amen. Ready? Great.